Amen. Good morning. Did you uh, feel free to open your Bibles to 1 Kings 13, where we'll be this, this morning, 13 and 14. Um, I'm going to go ahead and ask God to continue to lead us this morning as we open his word. So, Father, thank you for today. <clears throat> thank you for um, being able to gather here together. God, it is good to be together this morning, and Lord, as we sing songs that are to you and for you and about you, and we open up your word and we read a pretty crazy narrative today, God, uh, involving some different choices being made and people who are following you and, and turning their backs on you, and God, it's really more like looking into a mirror at times than some other old account, God, this time that we are so often prone to follow you and yet prone to wander. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that your word would come alive to us, God, that we would see ourselves in this story, God, that we would be people who would be quick to try to apply the word to our own lives, God. We give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't quite know how old I was, but... I was old enough to remember that it wasn't very often that Monster Jam came to the Rockford Metro Center. Now, if you don't know what Monster Jam is, Monster Jam is this big event with these giant monster trucks that come, they fill these arenas full of dirt, and they jump over cars, and they spin and do all these kinds of crazy tricks. And for anyone who loves adrenaline, power, torque, engines or just loud noises, this was a cool event. And I remember being young, and my little brother Kyle and I were really into monster trucks. And it wasn't very often that it came to town, and even more rare, it wasn't very often that my mom and dad were willing to take us to this event. And this was the pre-internet days now, okay? I'm, I'm not exactly, you know, old, but I'm not exactly young either. And so the pre-internet days when you get your hands on these promotional magazines to tell you what was going on when. And I remember my dad bringing one home from the factory and, and showing me this event was happening. And I just went, I looked and scoured through it and I found it. My favorite monster truck, Gravedigger. <laughs> okay, Gravedigger, there she is. Look at that. Kind of, you know, it's creepy, I know, but I was a kid, it was awesome. Gravedigger was powerful, and it wasn't afraid of anything, and I was so excited to go see this event. And you know, growing up, it was pretty easy. Mom and Dad were pretty relaxed, and, and, and you know, there weren't a lot of rules, but there was one thing I remember. What Mom said, Mom meant, right? What Mom said was law, and I remember there were certain things that she would tell me from now and then and remind me of certain rules in the home. One of them were, was you don't play in our parents' bedroom. You just, you just don't go in there because, you know, there are things like ironing boards with irons on them. And I remember playing around and being told, you don't do that. I learned that what mom said was law. You'd listen to that. Well, a couple days before the event playing around, hide-and-seek with my little brother, no big deal. Then the day of Monster Jam comes, and it happened. I snuck in, playing hide-and-seek with my brother Kyle, and I bumped 
the 1990s, early 90s, creaky old metal ironing board, and it started getting topsy-turvy, and the iron was about to fall. I knew if mom heard the clunk, I was in trouble. So I did what every little kid who thought he was a ninja with cat-like reflexes did, and I hit the iron to protect it from going on the carpet, not knowing that my mom had turned the iron on to iron our clothes. And instead of hitting the iron away, I gripped the iron. Yeah, I know. I didn't know at the time how much that was going to hurt, but now I, I didn't realize that there was heat involved. You see, I just saw my mom do this magic trick. She took this little device and took these wrinkly pile of clothes and magically rubbed it, and all of a sudden they were, like, smooth. I had no idea that heat was involved. And I learned that day that mom's rule was there for my own good. I learned that day that mom's rule was not just her being mean, that there was an idea of protecting her kids. You see, I had to stay home that day. My parents decided that the best thing for you to do is not go to Monster Jam and enjoy time with family, to enjoy some memories. It was better to stay home with grandma and grandpa, which was actually okay. I love my grandparents when they were alive. But there's a level of pain involved, both physically and inside, where I realized I knew I was missing something bigger. And I learned a very valuable lesson that day by not seeing my favorite monster truck, Grave Digger. You see, I learned that mom's word was good and that she meant what she said. Her words mattered. And I think if we look at today, we could sum up the narratives we're going to read and, and talk through. We're going to see that in a very similar way, in a much more true way, God's word always matters. And that God actually always means what he says. You see, we're getting to the point in 1 Kings with King Jeroboam. You see, King Jeroboam's been revamping his kingdom. He's been turning away from God, and, and he's and now in God, but God's word, and he's been doing this revamp and building these things, these places of worship centered in the image of Jeroboam, not the image of God. He's not following God, and he's not doing what God's asked of him. And our first text today, it picks up at a pivotal point in Jeroboam's renovation of his kingdom. It picks up towards the end of the renovation. Jeroboam is standing over the altar, ready to dedicate all that he had done well, not to God, but to some false God. And we're going to see today in 1 Kings 13, 1 to 5, that Jeroboam was interrupted. Behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. Jeroboam was standing by the altar ready to make offerings. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, Thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign on the same day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so he could not draw it back to himself. 
the altar was torn down also, and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. As Jeroboam's about to finish what he started, he gets interrupted. And what we see here is a man of God. We're not giving a name. We're not, and it's not just a godly man. A man of God being a prophet or the one whom the word of God came comes to Judah by the word of the Lord. And that's a huge, huge theme all throughout kings, especially here, though, the word of the Lord. You see, Judah is the southern kingdom still ruled by the house of David. And at this point, there's a division, and Jeroboam is not of the house of David. He's not the one ruling uh, this part of the land in the house of, the, of David. This is the focus of Jeroboam's fears, this man walking in. See, Jeroboam is in Bethel. Bethel's located in Israel, the northern kingdom. There's a division here, and this interruption is not to be taken lightly. Here we see the man of God represented everything that Jeroboam has renounced in the previous days. Everything he's trying to get away from with his renovations of his kingdom, building the altar, sacrificing to something else but God. This man walks in and he represents everything that Jeroboam is trying to get away from. You see, the man of God does not even acknowledge the king. He goes straight to the altar, an inanimate object, And he begins to speak to the altar. Remember, he says, O altar, O altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you, the altar, the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. Imagine the scene. You believe you've just done this great thing. The stranger walks in. You know kind of who he is, where he's from, what he represents, and he starts talking to the thing you've made, saying, Never mind you. The very people who sacrifice on you will be burned on you. Well, if you're the one making the altar and trying to sacrifice on it, that would get your attention. You see, he doesn't stop there. He continues to give details, words that the Lord has spoken about the sign that will occur. It will be broken. The ashes will be poured out. But his plan does, or then all of a sudden, Jeroboam does what he thinks is best, and he acts in his own power, his own intellect. When put, when put in a position to heed the warning, he puts his hand out and says, seize him. I'm king. I have the authority. Stop him. You see, the thing is, the man of God is not a man of man. It's a man of God. And to grab Jeroboam's attention, the Lord shrinks his hand to the point where he can't drop back on himself. His hand shrivels. And it's in this moment that we see Jeroboam disregard the word of the Lord. You see, the promise that God had made, he sees God's promise as a threat to his own power, authority, and plan. Jeroboam's man-made religion directly goes against what God has planned for his people. And Jeroboam doesn't acknowledge that. Instead, he tries to stop it. You know, it didn't have to be this way. Perhaps you remember chapter 11. Chapter 11, verses 37, 38. This is saying, God says, I will take you, Jeroboam, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires. And you shall be king over Israel. And if you, Jeroboam, will listen to all that I, God, command you, 
and will walk in my ways and do what is right in my eyes by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I'll be with you and will build you a sure house, a dynasty, as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. You see, God, God here is telling Jeroboam, listen, if you're faithful to me, I will do great things in your life. Understand the gravity of what's being said. We've just read about the altar and, and, and the man of God and the shrinking hand, but before that, God has met with Jeroboam saying, listen, if you follow me, I will bless you. If you come to me and trust me, if you grab onto me, I will lead you. God says that if you would just be faithful with what I've given you, I promise I'll give you more. This is a conditional promise. He's presenting an if you will, then I will statement. And he gave him an amazing example to consider. He said, like King David. And if you remember David, <laughs> David, the man after God's own heart. You see, David's the guy who, who acknowledged that in conception did it, that he became a sinner. In sin did my mother conceive me. I've been a sinner since I was conceived. How much more do I need God? You see, David's not a perfect man. David is the man that failed time and time again, but taught us repentance. David's a man we look to, not for perfection, but for a model of what it looks like to go to the perfection when we're imperfect. David is not a perfect man. He's just a model of what it looks like to turn to a perfect God. And God here is stating, as I built for David, I'll give to you. And it's really the next uh, four or five verses that we get a glimmer of hope, a glimmer of hope that perhaps Jeroboam will be the king like David. You know, when his hand shrinks, he says, hey, entreat the Lord, entreat now the favor of the Lord your God. Pray for me that my hand might be restored. And the man of God listened. He entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored. And it's in that moment that Jeroboam got to see that when I ask God for something, sometimes he says yes, and he heals me. That should draw him to God. That should draw him to the Lord. And yet, the king said to the man of God, come home with me, refresh yourself, and I'll give you a reward. The man of God said to the king, if you give me half your house, if you give me half your kingdom, king, if you give me half of what you have, I still won't go with you. He said, the Lord said, God said, do not eat, do not drink anything from Bethel. And he said, go home a different way than you came in. It's in that moment that the man of God went another way and did not return by the way which he came to Bethel. You see, Jeroboam's response was one of humility at first. The small little glimpse of thankfulness that my hand has been restored. But then, once his hand is restored, <laughs> once all is right in the world again, we see his true colors. He says, come home. Let's not go to, uh, let's not go to a... Uh, a let's not go to a public place of worship. Let's go to a private place. Let's go where no one can see us. He says, refresh yourself. Get some food and drink. 
And, and the reward, that word reward. I need to pay you for your service. As if doing the will of God, doing God's service is not enough. I need to pay you for your service. And perhaps this will be a nice political thing, uh, a nice little endeavor. Jeroboam wants to give the man of God credit where credit's due to the Lord. The man of God stands firm with what the Lord says to him and declines the king's offer. And even if you give me half your house, I won't do it. And that's a lot of money. It's a lot of things. And this is where we want to pause the narrative of Jeroboam and dig into uh, the man of God's story a little deeper. You see, God told him, declare the prophecy to the altar, open the eyes of Jeroboam, don't eat anything, don't drink anything from Bethel, and go home a different way than you came. And he has done that. And we see in verses 11 to 14, the story continues, that now we get introduced to yet a third person, an old prophet from Bethel. So remember, man of God from Judah, old prophet from Bethel, okay? So two different areas. They're in Bethel right now with Jeroboam. His sons came to the prophet. The prophet's son came to the prophet and told all the man of God had done to the king that day in Bethel. They also told him, the father, the old prophet, about the words that were spoken to the king. Verse 12 says, the father says, which way did he go? I gotta meet this guy. I gotta see this. The sons showed their father the way. And he said to his son, saddle up the donkey for me. Get the ride ready. I'm going. And on the road, he met them under an oak tree. So now this old prophet from Bethel meets the man of God from Judah. The old prophet from Bethel introduces himself and says, are you the man that went and spoke to the king, the man of God from Judah? Of course, the man said, I am. And it's in verse 15 of chapter 13 that we pick it up here. Then he said to him, come home with me and eat bread. This is the old prophet from Bethel says to the man of God from Judah, come home with me and eat bread. And he said, I may not return with you or go with you. Neither will I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. For it was said to me by the word of the Lord, you shall neither eat bread nor drink or water there, nor return by the way that you came. And he said to him, I also am a prophet. The prophet from Bethel says to the man of God from Judah, I also am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, bring him back with you into your house that you may eat bread and drink water. But he lied old prophet from Bethel lied to the man of God from Judah. And he went back with him and he ate bread in his house and he drank water. Did you catch what happened? The man of God does the right thing and states the truth. God has already said, I've already told the king and now you're a stranger. I'm going to tell you the same thing. This is what God has said. But then what happens is an old prophet, but we're on the same team. You and I have the same job. I'm a prophet, and an angel told me that God has said these things. And yes, it's different than what he told you, but I assure you, the words are from God. And just like that, verse 19 happens. The man of God goes back with the old prophet. He eats and drinks in Bethel. 
You see what happens here is the man of God stops listening to the word of the Lord that God had given him personally and begins to listen to the other voices in his life. He begins to listen to things that aren't of God when his one job was to listen to the word of the Lord. It says that in verse 20 to 23, it says they sat at the table and the word of the Lord came to the prophet who brought him back. And there's another interruption. The prophet that has lied and deceived the man of God, all of a sudden, a word of the Lord appears to him. And he cried to the man from Judah. This is what God is saying. Because you have disobeyed the word of God and have not kept the commandment that I've given to you, you've eaten, you've now drank water, you're back in Bethel. Your body shall not come to the tomb of your fathers. And after he'd eaten and they drank, he saddled up his donkey and he left. And all of a sudden, the very man that lied is now used by God. The very prophet that lied about what God said now has a true, honest word from the Lord. And it's a word of warning. It's a word of dedication. It's a death notice. Man of God from Judah, you've done these things. You, now you've misstepped. I've deceived you. But here's what God is saying. Now you will die. And it says you will not come to the tomb of your fathers. You're going to die in exile. You're going to die alone. There's not going to be much of you to be taken back to the tombs of your fathers. Now, this for you and I should really mess with our ethics a little bit. We should have a problem with the fact that now a guy is going to die because of the guy that deceived him, and the guy that deceived him is now telling him he's going to die because God said this is true. That should mess with our ethics a little bit. And I think when we step back from the story, we can see one truth that is over top of all of this, and that is that God is sovereign over every detail. And sometimes, sometimes God uses things, situations, and people that we don't necessarily understand, that we don't like or even agree with to do his will. But our job as people is to trust God. Our job as believers is to trust God and know that he does as he pleases. You see, verse 21, the language here is stronger than we might see here in English. 21 literally reads, because you have rebelled against the mouth of God. Because you've rebelled against the mouth of the Lord. See, the same phrase is used to describe the rebellion of the people of Israel in the days of Moses. And Samuel used this phrase when giving a severe warning to the people when they were demanding a king like the nations that surrounded them. You see, it's in this account that the man of God, that we can plainly see the experience of God's people all throughout history, following God, defending what he's saying, and then turning away, living in deception and then repenting, but then going back to deception. 22, you'll die in exile. You see, to be buried with a family is important, <laughs> but the idea that you won't have much to take back to the tomb those aren't comforting words. Not only are you going to die, you're going to die in a pretty terrible way, is what the prophet is saying. You see, because of the man's disobedience to the word of the Lord, he would now face the consequences of his decision. And we're given those details in verses 24 and 25. 
And he went, as he went away, as he, the man of God from Judah, went away, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his body was thrown in the road, and the donkey stood beside it. The lion also stood beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown in the road and the lion standing by the body. And they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. I'd say that's a pretty terrible way to go. All of a sudden, he's traveling. And the logical point is that the lion's going to get the donkey, right? This is, how, this is how nature tends to work. And instead, the donkey's standing there safe. The man of he's tore up. He's dead. He's dead. And then the lion just stands there next to the donkey, perfectly safe, body on the ground, and people walking by. I told you it's a crazy story today. And it just shows a statement. Imagine being the people walking by. First off, how terrifying a lion would be, because even then, they were scared of lions. And just seeing that the one thing that it should be eating is perfectly safe is just standing there. And all of a sudden, the body is just on the floor of the ground, and the lion just hovers. This isn't about a lion eating a person and it being gross. It's about sin having consequences. Just as the old prophet found and met the man of God from Judah under an oak tree, a lion found and met the man of God on the road. A parallel that's sad but telling. We can see now that the encounter earlier between two men was just as hostile and destructive as this one between a man and a lion. For one led to another. Or as one commentator states, the prophet of Bethel had been destroyed uh, or had destroyed the man of Judah with his lies as surely as the lion killed him with his claws. Imagine being the men who passed by and what you would have said to the people in the city. And at this point, I want to pause and just draw a few application points from the story so far. You see, there's a serious lesson to be learned from this extreme example, and that is God's word demands our obedience. When God says something, even more true than when my mother said something, he means it. When he says, don't eat, don't drink, go a different way than you come, his word and no one else's matters, <laughs> even if it's from an angel. The word of the Lord, which we have today, the word of the Lord, which we see back then, stands and it matters. And it's not another word that matters. Number two, may we reflect on how much we are the same perhaps, as the man of God, so easily deceived, and it's been that way since Genesis 3. We find ourselves daily, perhaps, in the Romans 1 conundrum, exchanging the truth about God for a lie. May we be defensive against these things. But I want to go back to Jeroboam for a minute. Jeroboam, being aware of this incident, has the chance to do the right thing, to be like King David, to repent and acknowledge God and his word. However, perhaps uh, like us at times or even now, we see Jeroboam that is not willing to submit. 
1 Kings 33, 34 says, After this thing, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way, but made priests for the high places, again, from among the people, any who would, he would ordain to be priests in high places. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam, so as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. And not only do we have a non-repentant Jeroboam, we see a stubborn man who digs his heels in the ground and doubles down on the Lord. He begins to multiply his sin. He recruits and gives a platform to any who would be willing to become priests, to lead others into the same sin that he is in. These high places, these idol factories, these false god venues, these sinful arenas, the altars to the no real God, he gives them a platform made in the image of Jeroboam. And this sealed the deal for Jeroboam. I mean, literally two chapters earlier, we have God saying, if you walk with me, I will bless you. If you, if you, if you do these things, I will give them to you. We see this conditional promise. And yet here we are in verse 34. And this thing became sin to the house of Jeroboam as to cut it off and to destroy it from the face of the earth. You see, Jeroboam's sin did not just impact him, it impacted his family, it impacted his nation. It's in chapter 14 where we see how serious the Lord was and also how mistaken Jeroboam was about sin. Jeroboam honestly thought nothing would happen to him. He felt invincible, and perhaps you and I struggle with this as well. We feel like if we, if we don't see the immediate sin results, we must be getting away with something. And yet we're given much detail in chapter 14. You see the first nine verses talk about his son, Abijah. He got sick to the point where he was gravely sick and Jeroboam was concerned. So the king told his wife to, to make herself look different, to go to a prophet in Shiloh, to try to deceive the prophet by bringing a humble offering of 10 loaves and, and honey and, and some cakes to give as an offering of thanks to the prophet. See, the prophet had eyes that didn't work very well in his old age, and yet the word of the Lord showed up to the prophet and said, Jeroboam's wife's coming to you and understand what's going on here. There's, she's trying to deceive you, and, and, and this, is what, this is what I want for you. She's going to inquire about her, her sick son, but I want you to tell her the words that I give you. So she shows up looking different. I'm not sure if she had different robes or different makeup, what she had, but she was trying to disguise who she was. She brings the offering in, and the prophet who could not see says to her, Come in, wife of Jeroboam, why do you pretend to be someone else? You see, Jeroboam thought he could somehow hide what was going on, and he got his wife involved. He says, because I exalted you, is what God says through the prophet, because I exalted you, Jeroboam, because I tore my kingdom away from the house of David, and I gave it to you, you have not been like my servant David. You've been sinful. You've done evil above all who are before you. You've provoked me to anger. You have cast me behind your back. You've turned your back on me. These are strong words from God. And in verse 10, we pick it up. He says, Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam 
as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. Anyone belonging to Jeroboam who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. And anyone who dies in the open country, the birds of heaven shall eat. For the Lord has spoken it. Arise, therefore, go to your house. When your feet enters the city, the child shall die. That very child you come to get a blessing over will die the moment you step back into your city. 13, and all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he only of Jeroboam shall come to the grave, because in him there is found something pleasing to the Lord, the God of Israel, in the house of Jeroboam. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for himself a king over Israel, who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam today, and henceforth the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water and root up Israel out of this good land that he gave to their fathers and scatter them beyond the Euphrates because they have made their Asherim, provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam, which he sinned and had made Israel to sin. This powerful man had the choice to run to God. This powerful man's decision-making, his sin, his pride, his arrogance, his power, turned him away from the Lord. And his family died, and his nation suffered because of his decisions. What a tragedy this has become. The Lord had made a conditional promise, if you will, then I will. And Jeroboam had the leadership of king, the kingdom of God at his fingertips. And he let it go, decision by decision, one choice at a time. Jeroboam's decision-making, his sin, rebellion, disobedience, not only had an impact on him, but his family, his nation. And so we have to ask, what are we left with today with all of this, this crazy story? How can we possibly draw something for today out of this text other than God sounds really mean sometimes? I think we got to look at each person. The man of God was used by God. He was sent by God. He did his duty. He did the right thing, but he lost track. He took his eyes off God and he paid the price. The old prophet was enticed to meet the man of God. He lied to him. He deceived him. He even said, God told me this. He caused the man of God to stumble. He has the man of God's blood on his hands, and yet God, in the moment of dinner, the same dinner that was disobedient, the same dinner that God said don't have, God shows up and speaks a word warning him, this is what's going to happen to you. You will die. You will not go to the tombs of your fathers. He gives the death notice of the man of God. But at the end of it all, for this old prophet, there's this glimpse of hope of the prophet. Uh, he asked to be buried with the man of God. He said, when I die, would you bury my bones with the man of God's? The man that I deceived, the man that I realized his life is over because of my sin, would you bury me with his bones? And for you and I, that sounds kind of funny, maybe. But in an Old Testament way, there's this idea that I know his life physically is over, but I believe God has not abandoned this man of God. 
And the judgment that was spoken in verse 2 of chapter 13, the bones will be burned on the altar, sacrifices will be made. I don't want that judgment on myself, so will you keep me next to the man of God? And it's not quite the same as salvation, but there's this idea that I will be blessed by being next to the man of God. And what we see is in 2 Kings 23 that that thing actually happens when that King Josiah comes as prophesied, as told 350 years before it happened, that Josiah passed that grave by and that man's bones were not burned on the altar like chapter 13 said. And Jeroboam is the third man. He died and his whole dynasty shriveled up, much like his hand, except his dynasty didn't get restored. I think some final applications for us today as we take it a step further into today for us is first off, disobeying God's word is destructive. You see, sin leads to destruction. That's not just an Old Testament thought. Our New Testament shares a lot of that same truth. Sin back then and sin today is equally as disgusting. It's equally as separating us from God. It's destructive. And Though sometimes you and I don't get immediately you know, punished for our sins, the, the Bible says that sin causes separation between us and God. And obedience is, is followed by blessing. Disobedience of God's word is destructive. I think secondly, uh, number two, to be attentive to the times when God is calling us to repentance. You see, Jeroboam had plenty of times to repent. He had plenty of times to stop what he was doing, to turn his back on his sin, and run the other direction. He had plenty of times to repent, to change his mind, to align his heart and his mind with the Lord and agree with the Lord. And the times when it counted, he doubled down, he dug his heels in the sand, and he said, I got this. And I want to judge him, except I realize that I do the same thing sometimes. Now, when it's time to stop, I dig my heels in the sand and say, God, I got this. And I'm thankful God does not send a lion to take me out. I'm thankful that God does not send these random prophets to, to you know, tell me how I'm going to die. But if I read scripture, I understand it to be true that when I say, stop, God, I got this, that I'm causing separation that for me as a Christian, I, I'm acknowledging that, yep, Jesus needed to be crucified. Yep, let's keep doing it. Let's just keep doing it. Instead of stopping and turning and saying, you know what, I understand what, what this costs. I'm going to walk faithfully with the Lord. To be attentive to the times when God is calling us to repent and to have soft hearts to that. And then lastly, even in the darkness, there's hope. We can't forget the promise that's threaded throughout this. Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name, and he shall sacrifice on you the altar. This happened 350 years later. Jeroboam would have been terribly disturbed to hear these things because he was the only one making sacrifices on the altar at this time. And if Josiah, born to the house of David, was making sacrifices, then he and his house would have lost power and control and legacy. And that would have been a terrible thought for him. And yet he did not repent. You see, the word of the Lord takes on many forms, promises, commands, teachings, warnings, judgments, and so on through Scripture and throughout history. 
But it's all, the essence is all the same. It's God's promise. God's promise commitment for his purpose, for his people and his creation. God's word is threaded throughout history. And for us in 2019, with the full closed canon of scripture, with God's inspired and errant word, we have the privilege of seeing past Jeroboam all the way to Jesus, all the way till today and understanding that it's the word of God that allows us to truly know who God is. It's scripture that allows us to understand the heart of God. The word of God at this time we're talking about came through prophets and the word of God today we have in our hands in scripture. We don't beg church members and, and youth group kids and Sunday school classes and attendees to, to read the Bible because it's good homework. It's the heartbeat of God. It's his love letter to us. It's the word of God. And amazingly, amazingly, it's not just the Bible. That's the word of God. You know what scripture calls Jesus? John tells us in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, eternal, infinite God, the Word. Sometimes we think reading books are hard. It's a lot of work. It's just a lot of... God gave Jeroboam the example of David to be a good king. And God has given Jesus Christ on earth to show us today how to follow him, how to walk in obedience, how to not dig our heels in the sand, how to not stiff arm the Lord, but to daily turn to the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. For you and I, we're blessed to be able to read the word of God, which points us directly to the word of God, Jesus. Disobedience is destructive. Repentance is required. It's only in Jesus that we find our hope. You and I don't have to worry about the iron falling on our hand and burning. We don't have to worry about the lion showing up to eat us. We have to worry about eternal separation from God, from being dead in our sin. But Scripture says that Jesus came, he lived, he died, he was buried, he resurrected, that all who may believe in him shall not die but have eternal life. <laughs> Would you call on the name of Jesus this morning? This Jeroboam and Josiah and all the things we looked at in 1 Kings 13 and 14 is just a foreshadowing of Jesus. Today we learn from these three men that God is sovereign over all, that he demands our obedience, and that our actions do have consequences. May we call in the name of Jesus today to allow him in, to not have to live in the same fear that Jeroboam had to in his days. Would you pray with me? Father, as we think about this chapters of scripture. God, it's a lot of text. It's a lot of things to walk through. But God, I ask that you would uh, show us more and more in your word, God, the holy scriptures, but also through studying the scriptures pointing to the word, uh, Jesus, th this life, this example, uh, this savior, this one that we can call on to repent and turn from our ways. Lord, I ask that you would allow us to examine our hearts today, our lives today. The places we're digging our heels, I pray we would stop. The places that we're asking people to stop and to seize them, that we would stop doing the out of power and control and let you in, God. 
May we turn to you, Jesus, as we consider what our sin costs, not just our lives physically, but our lives eternally, our spirits, God. I pray, Lord, today that you would use this time, uh, this message, the worship time, the service, Lord, to springboard us into uh, not only a great day ahead of us, but, Lord, a day of truly walking with you, God, that we would turn to you each moment of every day from here on out, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.